0: today we are talking about the passion of the comic books how we serve at the collective church of comic books prince said it best when he said we are gathered here together dearly beloved to discuss today we're discussing comic books do you remember how you felt when you open that first comic and it shook you to your core, you're, 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 you you're were about to jump out of your own skin because you were so excited by what you were experiencing. Well, that is what we're going to talk about today. The places that comic books have taken me as a fan, the friendships that I made along the way, the conventions I attended, all of the different relationships uh, that I can squarely put at the church of comic books at the foot of the church of comic books. It's not a religious episode. It's about our passion for sequential art, for storytelling, for graphic novels. And we're sharing it all together today in one hallelujah on an all new Robservations. observations. Hey everybody. Welcome to another edition of Robservations. observations. I am your host Rob Leifeld, I of the comic book producing, uh, uh, vocation that has gone on for 36 years, almost 37 years. I've written comics, drawn comics, published comics, edited comics, produced comics. I've printed comics. I've done all of it. I have been behind the scenes, uh, of, of a- the actual making of the comic books for the last 36 going on 37 years. We talk about not only comic books, but everything based on comic books, your toys, your video games, your movies, your streaming shows, the, the, the television shows that I grew up with, that's that's what we discuss when we are tuned in to a Rob Observations episode. There's over 200 episodes. I invite you to look through my catalog. I started this show in the pandemic with the help of my son who said, Dad, I can get you a, a microphone. I can set you up. And he did. And it, it gave me a chance to share my comic book experience as I have walked through uh, comic book's through the ages, I mean, w- when I started collecting comic books, Marvel comic books was was just, I mean, literally was around 14 years old. The, the Marvel comic books of the Marvel superheroes, not the pre-Marvel superheroes. The the Fantastic Four, the Sp- Spider-Man, you hit 1973, 1974, and you're looking at a, a 12, 13, 14 year scope that Marvel had been out of. And so many of those stories were out of my reach. But I was encountering them at a point that happened to be a huge changing of the guard that gave us modern masters that gave us what i believe to be some of the most seminal important writers artists of 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 all time in comic books and then it inspired my generation and we inspired the next and so on and so forth along the way i watched the creation of so many great characters on my watch as a comic book character, Wolverine came into being. I pulled him off a spinner rack. He arrived when I was a kid. I didn't go back and buy that appearance. I'll buy, nire, I'll, buy I'll buy nicer additions. I'll buy finer editions when I can but the the new X-Men, the transformation of the X-Men from also ran almost canceled to blockbuster uh, you know overwhelming force in the comic book medium in the pop culture medium happened on my watch. The new the new Teen Titans, became a force to to be reckoned with at DC Comics. George Perez crossed the street. One of Marvel's most seminal artists crossed the street. Some say out of a dispute with the editor-in-chief. I think it was getting hot in the kitchen at Marvel. It was being getting very competitive, and any guy um, with uh, his wits about him, which George definitely had, said there's nothing going on across the street. I can go and transform DC Comics and become the biggest player over there. And by exiting... He walked across the street, this gentleman named George Perez, who had been doing nothing but Marvel comics for six years, doing all their seminal titles. He crosses the street. I've done an entire, multiple episodes on George and his influence. But by w- crossing the street, he uh, exited a, a raging competitive uh, battle going on between John Byrne, Walt Simonson, Frank Miller, Jim Starlin, Howard Shaken, Michael Golden. And he walked right into a a company that was ready to embrace him. And in fact, the the week that new Teen Titans came out, the same week off the spinner rack, he was tapped to do the Justice League. His original, his first issue of the Justice League came out because the Justice League penciler had unexpectedly died. The man who had been penciling the Justice League all through the 70s, all through my interaction with the Justice League, a man named Dick Dillon, a fine... Uh, artist along the, the somewhere between Ross Andrew and the Neil Adams, the Irvinovic school was a gentleman named Dick Dillon, super talented. And he passed away. George then stepped into the breach to finish a huge crossover event. And also, so that justice league issue comes out, his new teen Titans number one comes out and he was doing backup features in the back of the flash featuring a character called firestorm. So that week that you come out that you, that you came out to get your comics You got like 50 pages by George Perez, 50 pages in one week. That's how important he was to DC comics. They immediately recognized what he brought from Marvel. That happened on my watch. I was a kid. That was, that's 1980. That means I'm 12. 12 is a pretty important age to consume stuff. Many of you that I've, that I've encountered, you picked up the work of me and my peers, whether it's Todd McFarlane, Spider-Man, Jim Lee's X-Men, my X-Force, Eric Larson, Spider-Man, you picked that up when you were 12 or 14 or 13, formative ages. Some of you 10, some of you nine. Today's episode is about the church of comics. I decided I'm just going to talk comics. I'm excited about them. I'm amped. I'm geeked. I'm fired up for many reasons. I'll share all those reasons, but we're going to get into the deep uh, kind of the bowels of why we worship comic books. This isn't, this isn't a religious episode. It's just taking the, the kind of the precepts of any church and applying it to comic books and how we not only consume, but share our comic books. When you go to church, and again, most of you know that I'm the son of a Baptist minister and, uh, my dad was good at what he did. He really, uh, loved Preaching, and he loved the Bible, and he based his life on it. He went to he he got his education at Wheaton College. He 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 uh, was was instructed. He he got his you know went back and got his master's degree. He just kept furthering his education. I watched him graduate when he got his master's degree here in Southern California. He was working on his doctorate. He wanted to go even higher, but uh, cancer and tumors and. Comas had a different agenda for my dad, which then turned out that he would have to kind of, kind of fight for his life many times throughout his life. I've mentioned my dad's tumors and the coma. The coma was the big one as an aside to Paul Leifeld, The tumors came back in 1985. Technology had advanced. There was no coma. There was no blood clot that was going to put him in a coma for nine months and keep him away from our house for almost 11 months. Because when you wake up out of a coma, you have to, that you've been in for nine months, you have to learn to walk and talk. Uh, a piece of his head was missing. A piece of his skull was missing. That's that's how lame the technology was. And they had to refurbish a piece of plastic and fit it underneath his skin to fit out, to fill out the, the, the section of the skull that had gone missing. That's in 1978. By 1984, 85, the technology had advanced. He had a brilliant surgeon, a French man named Dr. Rinaldi, who operated him in Chicago uh, on Operated on him in Chicago. I maybe you don't know this. I graduated high school and got on a plane to fly Chicago, to Chicago. My parents flew out for my uh, graduation. They hadn't wanted to bum me out prior, but my dad's tumors had returned. This time, not in his sight. The first time he realized that he had a problem because he was seeing triple vision every time, everywhere. He went to see the optometrists. They recommended him to go see a, spe- a specialist. They said. The tumor has constricted itself around your eyes, your left eye in particular, and it is it is it is warping your vision. This is the telltale sign. In 1985, my dad was struggling to talk. Uh, he could his throat was getting raspier, and 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 he was having a harder time talking because the tumors had uh, constricted around his vocal cords. And again, your cords come together in order to make a voice and sound, and they were constricting. He had too much mass and tumors that were weaving in and out. It sounds gross, but my parents had kept this from me. Uh, my dad had taken a job as, as both an educator uh, and an administrator uh, in Chicago, and they let me stay around to graduate my, my senior year. So much of my memories, and again, we're going to get into this today on the Church of Comic Books, because again, this is not about religion, this is about comics. Trust me, you're going to want to keep uh, talking, because I can talk about comic books with the best of them, and I'll, I'll hit something that you relate to most, most certainly. They didn't want to tell me uh, when they were back in Chicago what was going on. They wanted me to uh, enjoy the rest of my senior year. I credit my parents to having the discipline to not interrupt me. Um, it's not that it, it would have affected me had they told me. But I think they were like, we're going to keep this from our son who just is trying to finish out his high school with his friends and, and have that experience. <clears throat> and again, I had, like I've shared with you, the same kind of experience when my mom passed away this last, you know, late spring, early summer, and my son was graduating two days later. And I was like, I am going to give him the graduation that he deserves. My parents, I think, thought the same thing. They knew how much I loved high school, how, how much I love my friends. I had been living with my sister my senior year. My parents flew in 48 hours before I was going to graduate. My grandparents knew. They knew something was up. They were acting really weird when I arrived for my family kind of graduation party. My parents came straight from the airport and they asked to see me in a separate room at my grandparents' house. And that's when they said, look, your dad's going to have surgery. It's a better situation than it was last time. They knew that it would kick in in 1978 horror kind of, uh, you know, uh, trauma would hit me. And they said, but we have a better, uh, surgeon and and they've assured us of a better outcome. You need to come back and live with us this summer and help out and help your dad. My mom is going to continue working again. I've maintained this several times. We did not come from means. We were not rich. We don't have anybody with a stipend. We don't have anybody with a trust fund. Um, the life felt are hard hat, you know, uh, uh, folk. How do I make my living? I fill up a page. I do manual labor. I fill up a page, uh, and, and, and make pictures to go along with story and storytelling that I hope will entertain you. And I have been fortunate all these years that you have been entertained, but, uh, my, my parents were blue collar and, uh, and, and my mom worked. And now my dad was going to be, uh, severely kind of, uh, you know, not only inconvenience, but in a state of healing. but we had no idea how well this particular operation would go. but you know you're you're a son and you're dutiful and you you look to your parents who have said this and I did have like a broken heart that I was not going to see my girlfriend or my friends, and my friends were so important to me and my senior summer uh, was going to be spent in a place I had never been to. I've often told people that I don't remember flying on a plane prior to, the day after I graduated and getting on the plane with my parents and flying to Chicago and going to the home that they had in Chicago. A week later, my dad had his operation. He was in and out of the hospital within a week. I was, uh, able to tend to him and, you know, be there for lunches, dinners, snacks, uh, help him, help him with his, uh, his exercise. We, we had a great summer of great bonding. The summer of 85, I am in chicago the silver lining uh that i take from you know that experience was i was able to go to my very first chicago comic convention uh in in rosemont and when it was held in the hotel and i'm like i'm double dipping because my parents had surprised me and saying we're gonna fly you back for the san diego comic con so you can go back and you can stay with your aunt and uncle back in southern california and you can uh go to the San Diego Comic-Con in 1985 so my streak would stay alive. The one that I started in 1982 when my dad took me on the train. So comic books comforted me when I was nine with my dad. When I was now 17, I graduated when I was 17. I would turn 18 in October of 1985. But you know, June, July, August, and early September, I lived in Chicago except for the time I flew back to go to the San Diego Comic-Con. And, uh, the comic books that I packed and that I brought with me, they comforted me. They comforted me my entire trip. I found a comic store that was a 90 minute drive, uh, cause this was on the outskirts of Chicago and I would drive there and I got a poll list for that summer so that they would know that I, you know, was able to, uh, collect everything that I needed, consume everything that I needed. And so it was, it was really easy for me to just uh, take the car, kind of arrange on a weekend day, so my mom would be home with my dad, and I would head out to this comic store. And it was a cool comic store, and there wasn't as many comic stores in the city. We lived basically just, I keep saying Chicago, but it was about 45 minutes outside of Chicago. So <clears throat> rather than going to the city, because I was more intimidated, I wanted to go to this, uh, this other store, and I did. And uh, the great... The great thing was uh, That when I would make this drive My anticipation was so high The, sum, the summer of 85 is Crisis on Infinite Earths It's long shot It's uh, it, it, It's great issues Of Thor and X-Men But the stuff that I loved the most Was the Crisis on Infinite Earths All the tie-ins, whether it was DC Comics Presents The Flash, whatever was going on And Again, the long shot issues That Art Adams was producing as summer wound down and in september happened the art adams x-men annuals were arriving i've covered like that epic year of art adams when everything that he'd been working on everything that he'd been banking for years all came together in one calendar year stuff that he had been drawing in 1983 the long shot miniseries all got published one two three four five six six is a double page issue a uh, double page uh double sized issue and the two annuals are double sized so arthur put about 12 issues. It's the only time in his career that he had 12 issues worth of work in one calendar year. And it was spectacular. And it is my favorite Art Adams work of all time. I've talked many times about how he was putting together the styles. And you could see Mike Kaluta and Michael Golden and Walt Simonson and everybody mixed up in his in his his very commercial brand of, of illustration and storytelling. But when my dad, again, I'm pivoting to, sh- to share with you guys. So that, that's 1985. And I'll get back to that and all the great comics and, and the way that I was comforted in going to uh, the Chicago comic-con and meeting all, all sorts of new talent that didn't make the trip all the way out to San uh, San Diego. Because as, as I've heard over the years, some people really feel the pinch of the expense of going to San Diego. There's talents that don't come because of the cost. The hotels are more expensive during that period. San Diego knows what they're doing. So they jack up the hotel prices, the restaurant prices, uh, the, 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 the flight costs go up. I mean, so when I went to Chicago that summer uh, and attended my very first Chicago Comic-Con, I got to see a lot of talent that had never been there. Now, I'm gonna, again, I'm going to pivot back to this because not only did I meet this talent, I was able to assemble kind of what I'm going to hear. I'm here sharing with you today. I was able to assemble with other parishioners of comic books, other worshipers of comic books because of this Overall, Church of Comic Book vibe that I've got going that I'm gonna ch- that I'm I'm sharing with you today. My dad made it through; he got to the other side. They eventually moved back to Southern California because he's got complications. Uh, the the job that he was at didn't want to cover him on the insurance. Now, crazy, I know it's it, it's frustrating. He came back and pursued another vocation uh, when he got back here in late late almost as 85 was turning to 86, I think they came back in December, maybe it was early 86. I was living on my own. I had rented a room from a friend when I got back in the fall, and that's when I start working all these crazy jobs, construction, uh, delivering pizzas, which I had been doing during high school, and added um, busboy at a restaurant. So I was mixing it all up and trying to find time to tell stories and to get sample pages, because I really wanted to work in comic books. I wanted to go beyond parishioner and become participant part of the staff. (laughs) But my, uh, my dad would then get the tumors again in uh, 88. They'd come back in 94 and they would uh, kind of finish the job that they started. It took 20 years in 1999. So my dad had five different long stents. Each one was different. Each one had different different recoveries. Each one produced a different version of my dad. His personality was changed each and every time because they would touch on, even though they tried as much as they possibly could to avoid the temporal lobe the temporal lobe determines your personality sometimes my dad came out loopy sometimes he came out blue and these are years of these experiences and uh but when he finally passed away in September of 1999 and I attended his funeral the fruit of all that he had done as a Baptist minister in the late 60s early 70s and through the mid 80s uh I saw it We walked out, we emerged for his, uh, his funeral, uh, as the family to take, take our row. And we saw, uh, standing room only out into the lobby, all the people who my dad's, he, he, whose lives he had touched and not just ministering, being there for them, being a friend, uh, being in their homes, uh, cooking, you know, making barbecue on the grill at our house with, 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 with with uh, all the different participants. He taught a class at our church. It was called the Fellowship Group, uh, the mid kind of 40-somethings when I was a kid and, and a teenager. And I saw just so many people show up for and love on him and want to share with us how much they loved him. And I was literally floored because he had I knew for a fact some of these people he had not seen in 15 to 20 years. But I know that my dad, in his position as a pastor, had moved them, touched them, uh, been kind to them, uh, I've often said, and I have an entire studio, <laughs> just so you know, of people at extreme who interacted with my dad. Cause just for kicks, I hired him at extreme studios in the nineties to come and just file comic books for us. He'd file comic books. He'd file, uh, he, he'd do some, make some copies. And then when the studio wound down and I closed extreme, uh, after six years, he came over to my house every day and, he would uh, collate and kind of keep track of my own personal comic book collection. He alphabetized them all. When I go into my storage unit or the books that I've moved to my house, I still see his notes, his margins, the tabs that he made, and his handwriting. And so uh, my dad participated in the Church of Comic Books. He knew what what a nut for comic books his son was, and he was always participating in them come what may. The best part was it just gave him somewhere to go every day. He got to... Get out of the house. Drive to our house. See Joy and myself. We'd always hang out, have lunch, either make a sandwich, go get a burger, go get tacos, and then uh, he'd be done. He'd only come out. He'd, he'd come over three to four hours a day. And again, he'd he'd uh, I had quite the comic book collection, and, and especially all the stuff you know in the '90s when everything went completely crazy. He would um, take it upon himself to collate all of it whether it was Top Cow books, Wildstorm books, Spawn books, Shadowhawk books, all of the myriad of copies in this, and the, the, uh, the comps that we would share with each other because we all gave each other copious amounts of each of our books. And when I go into my storage unit, I mean, I, <laughs> I have a good collection of every studio because I never did anything substantial with those books. I've, I've just kept them in the boxes. Again, the stuff that my dad collated and organized for me. So, But my dad was a minister. He shared his life in terms of, uh, helping people. He was a guy who got down on his hands and knees and would help you out. He'd fix your plumbing. Uh, he was much more of a handyman than I could ever hope to be. And, uh, he was just, a, he was a man of the people and the people really love him. And they showed him by showing up for him. And it was, uh, it was extremely, uh, touching to be reminded, you know, about all, you know, that he had touched all these people, but, but, but in, in the course of a church when you go to church if you've ever gone to a church and some of you never have and never will and that's fine but for those of us who have you know they they ask about how you're going to participate are you going to you know volunteer are you going to help with kids are you going to help with parking you know our church has a giant massive lot and we have parking attendants many of yours do as well especially holy crap churches in Texas <laughs> the the giant you know parking uh operations that those churches in texas undertake they're 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 impressive but here you know there's all manner of volunteers people who work with the kids i worked with kids when my kids were kids i worked with kids at the at the elementary stage at the, at the preschool stage i'd work a shift during uh, a service many 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 you know services have multiple you know uh many churches have multiple services so whether you were the 9 the 11 or the Saturday night. What does that have to do with comics? Well, we're going to talk about how you're evangelizing with your comic books. How do you share your comics? Are you a participant? Uh, you know, which which area are you helping to further the church of comic books? Because the church of comic books is what I'm all about, and it's what you're all about, and it's what we're going to continue to discuss the remainder of this this show. And I'm about to ramp it up, and, and I've got some comic books in front of me that I'm about to share with you. So, so, so... Uh, we're going we're gonna to really get this going, and I'm going to tell you, because the reason I've called this episode The Church of Comics, is about the passion. I could have called it the passion of the comic books, but that doesn't sound as good as The Church of Comic Books. So to further elaborate on The Church of Comics, I'm going to tell you that going back to that summer in 1985, I can tell you every comic book that I bought at the store or at the show. And furthermore, I can tell you every comic book that I bought and how it affected me off every spinner rack or every comic book store shelf. that that I've ever purchased and, and I'm not kidding you. Those memories are what matter the most to me. And I've, I've, I've discussed before how I think when my dad was in the coma, when he, when I was nine years old, nine and 10 years old, 77, 78, I was comforted by issues of the Avengers, justice league, Spider-Man, Marvel team up X-Men. And I became, uh, I just escaped. I escaped in them, in, into those stories into those worlds into that, into that art. And, you know, I can remember, uh, the day like again I've, I mentioned that that handle that I follow the Twitter the the on Twitter the spinner rack and it lists the different comic books that came out per day and a couple other days you know a couple days ago when it put up the new Teen Titans in the Justice League in the flash with the George Perez Firestorm I'm like I remember exactly where I was it was a Saturday and I couldn't believe my good fortune I couldn't believe the Justice League had a George Perez cover again the magic of that period of time was there was no previews catalog that was available to the consumer. That would come in the late eighties, early nineties, and you could completely decipher and go through these, you know, listings and look at art clippings, you know, interior pages, covers, and 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 anticipate what's coming every three months from each each uh, from each catalog. Well back then you turned a corner and you saw something and it just blew your mind. You didn't know. Now in the case of the other day another another group of comics One was X-Men 114, 115, and and one was uh, Avengers 177, which was the wrap-up of the Korvac saga, the Korvac saga, which had run the entirety of 1977 and 1978 with this cosmic demigod uh, being. I've done an entire episode on Korvac, but the last chapter I was not expecting. And it's a great cover by Dave Cockrum and Terry Austin with... Thor, who back in those days, he had an alter ego as a, as a physician named Dr. Donald Blake. And Dr. Donald Blake is trying to revive all the fallen Avengers around him. And he's commenting on how they're dead. And you're like, wait, what? And then you open the issue and it was great fun seeing every single Avenger and Guardians of the Galaxy take their shot at Korvac, this incredibly powerful cosmic being who had been tormenting them for the better part of a year. That same day... X-Men 115 was a Sauron themed, Savage Land themed episode of the X-Men and I remember the Savage Land X-Men issue and the Avengers 177 I stopped at the park on the the walk home from the market and I sat in the middle of the summer day because these were August releases and sat under the shade of a tree at the park nearby our house and I flipped through those comics out in the open air, out in the summer afternoon I just loved the depiction of the Savage Land by John Byrne and Terry Austin. I loved the depiction of Sauron. I loved Khazar and Zabu, the, you know, biggest stars out of the Savage Land. And if you don't know what the Savage Land is, it's like hidden, you know, on the other side of Antarctica in the Marvel universe where dinosaurs still roam and, you know, kind of prehistoric civilization, uh, is it, it, still underway so it's a, it's a crevice it's a slip a, a a a different realm within the marvel universe and the x-men fell into it on the other side of the volcano collapsing on them when magneto had them under his uh he had imprisoned them these are great stories that entire john Byrne terry austin ignites my passion for the church of comic books like nothing ever has second uh, you know the, the next runner-up is the Frank Miller Daredevil stuff, which I have talked about ad nauseum here. Gun to my head, I'll take the Frank Miller Daredevil over Frank Miller's Batman. It's that good. Electra, the hand, stick. I mean, just amazing storytelling. Amazing, just a completely brand new aspect to world-building that I had never, ever encountered before. But that X-Men issue, this, all of the Savage Land issues, just really stuck with me, but... I can remember so, you know, clearly sitting on that park bench, not wanting to get up and move on with my day. I just wanted to sit with my comics. Have you ever just wanted to sit with your comics? Have they ever just excited you so much you didn't know you were about to jump out of your skin? That's the church of comic books. That's the experience. And we, and we find a way to share that along the way when the Titans was being built and becoming a giant, uh, source of Inspiration for DC Comics and a huge commercial sales success, which is which is why it was even more of a source of an inspiration. Like, how do we get more of this vibe and feel? Along those lines, in 1984, I was introduced to, and I've talked about it in, in previous episodes, a Teen Titans fan club. In it in the Teen Titans fan club, there was, uh, you know, about 60 different members. You would have a thing called an APA, an AMA, amateur uh, publication, uh, association. That's what an Apple was. Okay. And you would have a central mailer. Ours, her name was Margie. We would mail everything to Margie. If I was going to draw a picture of Cyborg, I would go and make 60 Xerox copies at the copy shop and mail those to Margie. If I was going to color them, I had to hand color 60. I, I did that before mail them to Margie she would then collate mine with all the other different contributions from the 60 different members who would contribute stories, articles, opinion pieces. Uh, my first raw observations are in both Titan, that it was called Titan Talk, was the APA, the Amateur Press Association you know, version of uh, for the Titans, was called Titan Talk. Later, with Hank Canals, who served as an executive over at DC Comics for 15 years, we created, he created Yappa. I was just a, a participant. Young Heroes APA. And so it broadened it because there were so many young hero teams at the time. Infinity Inc, Teen Titans, Legion, Legion spinoffs, X-Men, New Mutants, you name it. There was young uh, Batman and the Outsiders. So appas were something that I started in involving myself with in the mid-80s. But through Titan Talk, I was able to met, meet guys named Mike and John. And, and they lived where? In Illinois. And were they going to attend the Chicago Comic Con? They were. I had heard them talk about it in a previous uh, Titan Talk, which came out uh, the APPAs that I was participating in would come out six times a year, so they were bi-monthly, which gave everyone their time to do their art, write their articles, write their short stories, and mail them into the different APPAs. Message boards are the APPAs of our technological times, but back then it was again, you know, hand, you know, uh, handcrafted. You know, individually copied and and sent in and collated and then sent out. When I got my copies of my team, t- my Titan Talk in the mail or my Yappa, I I I just lost my shit. I couldn't believe like, oh man! I would just lose myself reading everyone else's opinions, the reviews of other comics that I liked that I was collecting, see other people's art. I met other great relationships a gentleman named andy mangles who went on to do all sorts of movie news for wizard magazine he wrote bloodwolf for me i met andy another guy i met through titan talk hank canals introduced me i was introduced to him through titan talk i became aware of titan talk because george perez had a copy of one at one of his signings and it was an original cover that he did for the anniversary and i was like how do i get this this you know this piece of art, this cover that has an original drawing of all of the Teen Titans standing there. Like you couldn't get it. It wasn't on a comic book. And so that, that was my introduction. I made great friends. I made great connections. Well, John and Mike, were going to go to the Chicago comic-con before wizard bought it. It was just called the Chicago comic-con. It wasn't wizard world Chicago. It was just Chicago comic-con. They were going to go. So we started communicating. They gave me their phone numbers. I called them up. I said, hey, I'm in Chicago this summer. Can we get together? We all went in and split a room. We experienced the Chicago Comic Con as roommates. And, uh, you know, it was just a sh- amazing experience to have two new buddies that I came to know because of the Church of Comic Books, because of our shared belief, of our shared passion, our shared religion of comic books that I met through a fan club. We hooked up. We shared a room. We got to know each other. We waited in line for sketches, for signed books. We went off, you know, on our own, collected and pursued our own uh, interests. And then we'd come back together at night. We'd grab a pizza. We'd grab a burger. We'd go, you know, walk within walking distance to one of the fast food joints because, come on, we're on 18-year-old, 17-year-old budgets. And we would just fangirl out over everything. And I have watched Mike, who became a music reporter, and he, you know, covers professional musicians for all manner of publications. I've done an interview with him. Uh, John and I lost touch over the years, but we'll always have that summer of 85 where we hooked up, shared a convention together, shared a room, shared art, shared stories, shared interests, shared passions, um, all because of comic books. I had friends that I wouldn't have otherwise had because of my passion, because of the comic books that I pulled off Spinner Racks that took me to different worlds, that gave me this escapism and I couldn't have appreciated it more. When I left Chicago that summer to go back to Southern California to rent a room from a family friend and start my kind of life post high school, because as you know, I did not go to college. I had no aspirations to go to college. I, would, I don't think I would have done well in college. I was a creative creature and I had been kind of preparing to get into comic books since I was a high, in, in high school, since my sophomore year when when they let me set my own curriculum. And I said, I just wanna draw comic book stories and do storytelling. My freshman year, I had shown that I can paint a car, paint a bowl of fruit, draw people and and so my 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 teachers let me set my own curriculum and so I would turn in X amount of pages each semester and show them the storytelling. I had one teacher who actively as I got older and and, and he came in and was the new art teacher. He was a young guy but he had no belief in comic books or their um in you know their their influence and just kind of actively discouraged me, but he saw that my passion was there because of the church of comic books. And he allowed me to do my sample pages. So by the time, you know, when I'm with my dad in the summer of 1985 in Chicago, uh, I'm drawing. I'm drawing all the time. I am drawing DC characters, Marvel characters. I'm doing storytelling. I'm doing uh, sequential art because I want to get into comics. When I went to San Diego that summer, uh, I was able to see Hank and some other friends. And we were able to further, you know, uh, feed the Church of Comic Books that we all shared. And we were able to talk to Marv Wolfman and talk to, to Romeo ton hall and, and all the different Titans creators that were there, not George, he didn't go that year. But again, we, we, we just went around, collected autographs, bought commissions, just kind of like the stuff that people do now at comic conventions. I did that. I know exactly what that's like because I've been on the other side of that aisle paying for that commission, um, crossing my fingers, hoping it, it turns out great. I was able to, as I mentioned before, meet Mike Zett, John Beatty. I, I stood and gawked over Arthur Adams. I think I've shared that there. Arthur Adams had about 10 pages from the X-Men annual, the second part of the Asgardian Wars. And he handed them to his editor, who is also at the San Diego Comic-Con. And again, this is in the old Civic Center that still stands there, not this the sprawling convention center that we all attend now. That didn't open until 1991, the summer of X-Force. That didn't, that, again, I've, I've said this, many different times but this is your first episode that amazing convention center that we all assemble in that goes all the way to hall h uh debuted in 1991 so anything prior to that is taking place in the civic center again which i went and revisited in the summer of 2020 when we were in you know our crazy pandemic uh phase of of our lives and they had canceled comic-con so i decided i'd go down and show my wife you know where comic-con used to be but in those halls at that Marvel table, Art Adams broke up those pages. If I've told this on a different if I've told this on a different podcast, forgive me, but at that show, I mean, my I I my, my mouth was just watering. I might have covered this on the Art Adams one, but it's worth revisiting. He had like nine or ten pages as they were trying to make the deadline and get the book out in the fall. The New Mutants special that was the first part of the Asgardian Wars where they were all up in Asgard with all the Thor characters and then the Thor world and dispersed all over Asgard in the deserts and the valleys and the kingdom. That was all inked by Terry Austin. It's exceptional. It's one of my favorite works by both talents, both Art Adams and Terry Austin. But the X-Men annual, the second part art showed up with the basically the last 10 pages of the book. It's all the stuff where storm gets the uh, hammer and transforms into the female four. Uh, that was a page. That page was taken by Joseph Rubenstein. Al Gordon took a couple pages. Mike Mignola inked a couple pages uh, Bruce Patterson, who had been, who was going to be inking George Perez on Wonder Woman, and had been inking Blue Beetle, and had been uh, uh, inking, you know, a lot of stuff over Paris Collins. He was primarily a DC guy, but he was on the floor. They went and found all the inkers in attendance and said, "Could you take this back to your room? These eleven by 10, 17 pages, and help us out to help us make the deadline." A gentleman named Arthur Nichols took pages. I mean, I watched. Then the next day, I made sure that I was at that Marvel table they had all said well we'll turn them in by the end of the day well i made sure that on on sunday i was there to see all these people turning their pages and joseph rubenstein and bruce patterson and art nichols and al gordon all hand in their pages and i'm like oh my gosh my head is exploding did i mention that while this is all happening arthur is doing a commission of Longshot in my sketchbook for me i remember this and it is in my head right now playing out as clear as it is because of the church of comic books the passion the belief and part of when we discuss being in the Church of Comic Books together, it is how are you serving? Are you sharing uh, uh, you know, a favorite storyline, a trade paperback, a hardcover? I came back from San Diego this year. My, son had, my, my family had been down there the entire time. I've covered many times how much they love Comic-Con and probably reawakened my own love for Comic-Con when I was done. My youngest son, Chase... On Monday morning, because I came home Sunday night, he came back Sunday morning. He asked me, he said, hey dad, I read about this Daredevil born again storyline that they're going to be doing on Disney+. Do you have a collection of that? I can't tell you how fast my eyes lit up and how ridiculously excited I got and how my pulse raced. Oh my gosh, my son just asked if he could read born again. Lickety split. I pulled that off the shelves and I handed it to him and I said, take care of this. Take as much time as you want with it, but we have to discuss it after you've read it. I was so excited that he was going to experience the illustrated version of this story before he was going to consume it as a Disney series sometime next year. My son Chase is an avid uh, manga anime guy. He Swears and, and his church is anime and manga. It is Attack on Titan. It is Chainsaw Man. It is uh, Hero My Hero Academia. It is Naruto. It is you know I, I'm running out. I mean I, I I'm just I, I've shared with him my passions. I was able to share with him you know Berserker. I was able to share with him The Bastard and Akira and all the stuff that I loved when I was his age, when I was in my 20s and I was starting to collect manga and anime. He doesn't normally participate in the Marvel or the DC stuff. So when he did, that's how I proselytized. So see what I'm saying when I'm talking about the Church of Comics? That's how I served the Church of Comics not even a month ago. I was like, I want you to have this. I want you to consume this. I want you to love this as much as you can possibly love it. And hopefully that'll be as much as I love it. And we can share it and and we can discuss it. He's almost done. He goes at his own pace. I can't wait to further discuss it. Uh, When my son, my oldest son, Luke had been to a bunch of Comic-Cons, and in the 2009, 2010, 2011 swirl that was the excitement about the Green Lantern comic books that Jeff Johns was writing and producing and making, he was on the Comic-Con floor, saw the Green Lantern imagery, the plastic rings, the T-shirts, the different color, the Purple Lantern, the Blue Lantern, the Yellow Lantern. It, It really got his attention. He said, Dan, I want to buy some Green Lantern comics. I said, great. And I, as I give a budget to all my kids when they go to Comic Con and, and buy them a certain amount of stuff, because I just want to, you know, them to have. It's no different than going to a fair. It's just a comic book fair. And at the fair, I'm gonna buy you, you know, a milkshake, a Slurpee, cotton candy, pay for your games, you know, probably buy you a stuffed animal or or some sort of concoction on the way out. So I, that's how I treat Comic Con. We got him a couple of the Jeff Johns Green Lantern runs, and he, upon Coming home, wanted to go to Barnes & Noble, wanted to go to Borders Books before it shut down. It was a nationwide chain for those of you who don't know what Borders was. And he would continue to add to his Green Lantern collection. He was consumed with Green Lantern. It was a phase because he consumed it all. And then he really was just looking forward to the movie more than I can possibly ever tell you. And when we went and saw it in the summer of 2011, he was totally disappointed that it didn't match up with what he felt was the greatness of the comic books. And so his interest in Green Lantern and all things Green Lantern kind of leveled off at that point. Then he became reawakened by the Marvel stuff. And did he come down or did you read my Infinity you know, Gauntlets and Infinity Wars during that entire stretch? He did because they know that I've got the goods. I've got the goods in my studio and in my library. So they were partaking. And so I'm, I'm proselytizing. People look at my spinner rack and they go, why don't you back and board that? Well, when I have kids over and sometimes it's my nephew's, who you know, have been five and six and seven and eight and nine, when they come over, I say, hey, grab something off the spinneret. Check it out. They're reader copies. I want you to participate in them. Sometimes I'll give them away. When I get extra copies of anything, I make sure it makes it into the hands of you know family members or neighbor kids. What's better than giving comics to our neighbor kids? Do you know how many times my wife has said, hey, so-and-so, fill in some mom's name. Their kids want to partake in some Deadpool and X-Force comics. Do you have any for them? I cannot tell you how over the years, how many of those comics I have signed and distributed and given because it's the Church of Comic Books. I'm trying desperately to proselytize. Comic books speak to a certain instinct because of the visual medium. I don't know if any of you have been watching Light and Magic, which is this most excellent miniseries on the Disney Channel. Not the Disney Channel, on Disney+. Plus chronicling the history of ILM I have mentioned several times on here how in 2000 late 2005 early 2006 they put out a box set that gave you the original Star Wars trilogy and then the prequels and in that was a documentary a three hour documentary called Empire of Dreams and for the longest time you had to have that disc in order to enjoy it but since Disney Plus has launched it's been on there you know and, and you can access it anytime I highly recommend watching Empire of Dreams it starts to scratch the surface it's so much of what the ILM miniseries goes into greater depth on, but for the definitive storyline of how difficult and the obstacles making Star Wars: Empire and Return were. Empire of Dreams is a self-contained three-hour saga, and it will give you all manner of drama and excitement and behind-the-scenes of how difficult it was to not only make Star Wars, but but when it was the you know making the sequel to the fo- the sequel, the follow-up to the most successful movie of all time at that time, making Empire Strikes Back was also a giant headache because nobody would give George Lucas a break. The bank threatened to shut him down at one point. This is insane. They currently have the offer on Paramount+, Plus, which chronicles the difficulties in making The Godfather, which was the number one bestseller for 52 weeks. It was on the charts, okay? The the, the studio fought him tooth and nail, and this isn't something that is... This is something that is still existing in the realm of entertainment right now. Any news that you've read in the last three weeks about Warner Brothers and all their problems as they decide how they want to continue to approach their catalog, and specifically the DC comic stuff. It reeks of the kind of stuff that George had to go through, that Coppola had to go through on Godfather. And they're not alone in the modern times. Not only did every studio turn down George Lucas, and only 20th Century Fox and Alan Ladd Jr. would take a a flyer on him and and give him the opportunity to make this amazing, you know, kind of life-changing, industry-changing film. And, and not only would, you know, Paramount just dog Coppola the entire production of Godfather, but going into the 21st century, did you know that, you know, as he stood ready to make Lord of the Rings, did you know that every single studio turned Peter Jackson down? They, not, they, they either said no or you have to make it in two films like Miramax did. The only place that had agreed to it prior to New Line was Miramax and the Weinsteins. He said, you got to make it into two movies. Peter Jackson journeyed on and on his last stop, New Line pulled the trigger. But 20th Century Fox turned him down. Universal Point turned him down. Paramount turned him down. Sony turned him down. Disney turned him down. Everyone turned him down. Everyone turned this guy down. New Line was not owned by Warner Brothers at the time. It was an independent independent, and and, and it And I think Warner Brothers bought New Line partially because of the Lord of the Rings, you know, access to those movies in that catalog. The Walking Dead, did you know that every single, at least 30 networks turned that down? Yes, we have, we we live in the age of, at the time that it was being pitched, you got TNT, TBS, HBO, Showtime, Cinemax. Um, Go through all of the page cable channels, then go to all the standard networks, then go to all of the secondary uh, cable channels. Only AMC, agreed to pull the trigger the stories of how and why and 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 the trepidations that some people had and some of them are speak strictly political or as a favor to a friend they weren't going to do any other genre stuff than the genre show they had those are not my stories to tell but certainly robert kirkman can tell you he encountered that and only one place stood ready to pull the trigger amc and who, who has reaped the bounty why am i bringing all these tv shows into the church of comic books because they're visual and if you watch light and light and magic You'll talk. You'll you'll see Steven Spielberg, you'll see James Cameron, George Lucas, all talk about nailing the visuals, the all of the effort that went went into putting together the visual the visual representation of their ideas, which is basically comic books that move, you know, the the the, the kind of the, the stuff that you're seeing in the Abyss and in Terminator and T2, and in Jurassic Park and in all of the different sci-fi movies that ILM has helped bring to life, whether it's Willow or Dragon Slayer, it is. It is how are we going to make this kick-ass dragon, this kick-ass T-Rex, these scary raptors? How are we going to you know, bring Jabba's, Jabba's palace to life? How are we going to make General Grievous? How are we going to make Yoda battle Count Dooku? Okay. How are we going to depict Jango Fett? How are we going to show the creation of the clone troopers? How are we going to pull off the T2 with the liquid metal? These are visuals, and they would talk over and over about how important it was to get the shot, get the picture right, because the picture is what takes our breath away. The visual representation in comic books are visual representation, first, foremost, always. The reason that I think most of the early 2000s is just pure trash is I've told you all the wannabe playwrights got into it. One of the wannabe playwrights did a did a crack at one of my my favorite comics recently. The Legion of Superheroes, and I knew it was absolutely going to wipe out because this guy does not think in a visual manner. He is not a James Cameron type. Matter of fact, he made fun of Avatar when it came out. He thought, no one's going to see this. It's army men and dinosaurs, and I was like, wow. But you always come up against these types of people who think no one's going to see the sequel to Top Gun. There's no way. They would laugh at my face when I said it was going to make $600 million. They would laugh at my face. Then when I said, it's definitely going to make a billion, they're like, not a chance. As today, it's on the precipice of $1.4 billion. There's always a sour, a sour, you know, element in in the genre because they want to make it about them and and about their ability to espouse Tarantino-esque dialogue or David Mamet-level, you know, exposition. And 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 uh, comics is visual. When I talk about that X Men One Hundred and Fifteen, there's a spectacular battle that John Byrne and Terry Austin visualized between Sauron and the X-Men hats off to Chris Claremont who realized every time he had a great artist that he would cater to them and go I I can give some really cool shit case in point not just the Savage Land stuff I was talking to you about but more importantly X-Men 141 I have it right here here's the crinkly pages I remember turning the corner one afternoon going to it was called U-Totem U totem, kind of the circle K of the 70s and the 80s. Not quite 7 Eleven. U-totems were all over Southern California. I've talked to other people, you can Google it, you can see what a U-totem looks like. U m And uh it was it was literally a 7-Eleven or a stop and go, which was another chain. All a mini mark. And uh some of them, when they went out of business, got bought by 7-Eleven and just All they did was put a 7-Eleven in the front because everything else was ready to go. It was literally stocked and designed exactly like a 7-Eleven. But U-Totem was right next to my house. It was the the three, four block walk. I turned the corner. I saw my favorite comic had come in. I saw the X-Men logo. I saw Wolverine on the cover with an older woman that he's protecting. He has gray on his temples. He's an older Wolverine. He's not in his costume. He's wearing a cool kind of leather jacket. And uh, he's got a gun strapped to his side. Wolverine has a gun. And behind him is a poster that shows all of the X-Men either slain or apprehended. Cyclops, slain. Colossus, slain. Storm, slain. Nightcrawler, slain. And it says, attention, you are now leaving a controlled zone. A spotlight is dropping on Wolverine as he's backed up against the wall. It is my favorite cover of all time. It has elicited the most excitement of anything I've ever imagined in my entire life. More than Star Wars, more than any moving picture. The cover to X-Men 141. Uh, still excites me. It is why it sits on my spinner rack in the manner that it does in in the prominent spacing that it does because it is nothing short of fantastic. When I cracked it open, page one, there's Wolverine. I mean, there's a, sorry, he comes on page two. There's the older lady and she's identified as being in the Big Apple and there's big giant Jim Steranko level Days of Future Past lettering that is carved out in the building. It's a great stylistic logo uh, design choice that John Byrne actually worked in the title of the story onto the face of the building. She's talking about meeting with Logan. It says it's the 21st century, so boom! I'm buying this in 1980 in the 20th century. It's 20 years till the 21st century, but she's in it, and it looks horrible. It looks apocalyptic. These buildings and the skyline and and the and and, and the ground beneath her is collapsed. She falls into a a a trap door opens up and she falls and she's facing a bunch of guys who look like the gang, the gangsters in the movie, the warriors, the warriors had come out in 1979 and it was a big kind of cult cult classic and everyone loved it. And, uh, and, and, uh, I had, I had been able to see it with my friend's dad. My parents wouldn't have let me seen a R-rated movie of that sort, but I was spending the night over a friend's house and he was like, well, let's go see it. It is directed by the incredible Walter Hill who would go on to direct other stuff like 48 Hours that is maybe more recognizable to you, but Walter Hill was a real gritty, stylistic, take-no-prisoners director. Had a great soundtrack, great music. Uh, if you've seen the lead guy in... Uh, In Xanadu, he was the lead guy in Warriors, Michael Beck. And, you know, the Warriors, that gang, the Warriors, is on the run throughout Manhattan the entire night. The movie takes place in one night when all the gangs think that they're responsible for a murder that takes place in the opening minutes, and they all pursue them. And there's all manner of different cool, uh, you know, gangs, some are dressed like Apache Indians, some are dressed like all of the New York Yankees, every, every different gang that pursues the Warriors has a motif, has a theme. These guys, these three gangsters that are surrounding Kitty Pride when she drops, I immediately recognize that Chris Claremont liked the Warriors. And 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 John Byrne visually interprets them because the, one guy looks like an Apache Indian, one guy looks like a guy with a top hat. This is right out of the Warriors to me. Wolverine shows up in his jacket and he takes him out. He fights each of the individual members and then he, they, he talks about rendezvousing with Kate, this is Kitty Pride. This older lady is Kitty Pride. She has an M on her jacket. It says mutant. While she is, again, the splash page, she's got some medical supplies, and so she's going to rendezvous with Logan, and she's sneaking through the city, which is just completely apocalyptic. Again, she falls through the ground, encounters this gang, Wolverine with the gray temples and the leather jacket, and the gun strapped to his side intervenes and takes them all down. He gives her a component of something he calls the jammer. And again, they say they're going to meet up later. They'll be waiting. They part ways. We then follow her into an encampment. And you see she walks by all of these gravestones. Kurt Wagner, Scott Summers, Charles Xavier, Ben Grin, Johnny Storm. Wow, it's beyond mutants. It's it's some of the finest, you know, Marvel heroes in the pantheon. The subway car that she takes is a single subway car pulled by six horses. There is no automatic subway and it's above ground. It's a subway car and everyone either has an H for human or an M for mutant. And she has a special place that she has to uh, stand. There's also an A for anomalous human, a normal person possessing potential mutant aspects. H is baseline human, clean of any mutant genes. This world that I've been introduced in these few pages in the constipated 2000 storytelling, everything I just told you would have taken 20 pages. But we've gotten there in the span of five. And then she goes into the encampment. That's when we see that now Magneto is in a wheelchair, like Xavier was before him. He's old and uh, he's sitting in a wheelchair. And we meet everyone else who is uh, Franklin Richards, who has grown up in a, into adulthood. We see Colossus, and they've all got neck restraints that keep them from activating their mutant powers. What am I reading? What am I reading? <laughs> They talk about hatching a plan with which that she will be thrown Kate's persona, her essence, her, uh, mind will be thrown back in the past and it will inhabit her young form. So it's like a freaky Friday. It's like a switching bodies, you know, movie where she inhibits it. We, we, we then, cut to now seven eight pages in we are in the modern day danger room with the x-men that we left in the last issue in 1980 and they are working out with xavier observing them and katie faints and when she kitty faints and when she comes to she's kate she has kate's consciousness and then she tells her story this is where i come from i watch you all die we're hunted the sentinels take hold we fall as a race there's a great panel where it shows all the Marvel heroes, Dr. Doom is dead. Ghost Rider is dead. Hulk is dead. Black Panther is dead. Captain America is dead. It's not just mutants. Like I said, the, 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 the tombstones just, they, they forecast this, everything that we would see here. It talks about a Senator's rise in power and, uh, how this all kind of came to a head with his election in 1984 and a, and a mutant control act that was passed. And, uh, it it, it it shows the reactivation of a new army of government-sanctioned mut- sentinels. The sentinels who have always h- hunted mutants would be activated officially and they would be the catalyst with which all the mutants would be murdered or imprisoned in this camp. Well, when we cut back, Wolverine is underground in the sewers below Manhattan leading our group of X-Men to safety and they've got Kitty Prides, Kate Prides, dormant physical form because her mind is in the present my 1980 with my x-men this is the most exciting comic book i've ever read and a sentinel rips suddenly rips open the top of the sewer they had detected them in there and they take off and battle them they've freed themselves of their collar colossus turns into his steel form storm takes to the skies and zaps him with the electricity and then colossus throws wolverine up towards the sentinel's head and he Wolverine chops it down to size and they collapse. In the meantime, Colossus sets about uh, destroying the foundation, the lower foundation of one of the decrepit kind of barely standing buildings in Manhattan. And again, this apocalyptic landscape and the building falls, crushing the Sentinels, enabling them to keep moving. Where's their target? They're going to the Baxter building. They're going to the Baxter building. Friends, I have never been more excited, and now as I revisit this, I am 12 years old all over again as I picked up Days of Future Past in the fall of 1980, and I shared this story with everybody that I possibly could, and when I got to comic conventions, when I eventually started meeting other people like me, I shared my passion of Frank Miller's Daredevil, of John Byrne's X-Men. This is what the church of comic books is all about. We share our passions. We share our loves. We share the talent, the visuals, this visual representation, the way Wolverine looks, boom, hooked me just like the way Boba Fett hooked me. And I, and I mowed lawns to get those proof of purchases and mailed them in. I put a Boba Fett toy up on my Instagram the other day, and I got all the other guys who are my age who did the same thing, mowed more lawns, delivered more newspapers so we could buy more Star Wars figures because you had to get the proof of purchase off an existing figure. In my case, I bought Sand People and stormtroopers, and I got those proof of purchases because you had to cut them out physically and mail them in an envelope and ad- address them to Hasbro. And they would then send you, or Kenner at the time, Kenner, and Kenner would send you your Boba Fett in the little toothpaste tube. And I'm telling you, the day that I pulled that out and I held a little plastic Boba Fett in my hands, my mind was blown. Why? I didn't know anything about him. I just knew he looked badass and I was going to go anywhere he would take me. When James Cameron talks about perfecting the T-1000, perfecting the uh, creature in the abyss, he's talking about visual representation that moves us. We need great creative minds to inspire great writers to think visually, and and when that happens, the magic of comics is completely unlocked. When I talk about *The Walking*, did I talk about a writer who always puts his artist first and foremost? And he gave both Terry Moore, Tony Moore, excuse me, Tony Moore, and Charlie Adlard some of the most spectacular visuals ever. When I first saw the world that he had constructed, it, and Robert had done a lot of thumbnails and a lot of behind-the-scenes sketches, and I'm like, "You've got a cowboy." against zombies that's i rick is a cowboy he's you know a marshal a sheriff a lawman on a horse you know on his way out of the city with rifles and pistols and coming upon uh, coming upon zombies The, the the visualization the thinking of the way that the visuals would come together and excite us is what robert did and what he does on every single project that he's involved in. whether it's invincible whether it's firepower whether it's walking dead uh, any of the amazing uh, Oblivion song, any of the amazing books that Robert has put out. He is a visual-thinking writer. He thinks about something great that his artist will depict. Claremont and Byrne were the best hand-to-hand. That last year, they were clicking so hard. But, you know, John was dedicated to splash page, double-page splash, and, and in many case, cases, a last page being a splash page. That's the dictation of an artist. And if he had to squeeze other panels in different pa- in different pages to make room for the big, splashy stuff that he wanted, he did. It was definitely an artistic motif that Claremont did not repeat when, uh, with other artists. It was specific to John in the in the third and final chapter of the Savage Land saga, and the X-Men are climbing the mountain with Kazar, and then they turn again. It's a splash page to a double page splash. It was a motif that John did each and every issue for a long stretch of time, and that is dictated by the artist, the visuals. That is what excites us. Light and magic is about creating mind-blowing visuals, and comic books work best when there are mind-blowing visuals, and that is what inspires us and fuels the church of comic books, which is why we proselytize and which is why we share our favorite comic books with other people because we can show them how awesome it is. We can show them that incredibly choreographed battle between daredevil and 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 the ninja members of the hand or that incredible hand-to-hand combat between electra and bullseye that as i shared like i think my second or third show of raw observations two two years back how it made me cry it's the first time i ever cried reading a comic i could not believe that, that 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 they went in the direction that they went to but the passion that i wanted to share with you today is all about our shared church of comic books we all commute Whether it's your comic store, my comic store, your convention in Texas, my convention in Vegas, my convention in California, your convention in in, in Idaho, in New York, in Chicago, in North Carolina, we are sharing our passion together. When we are side by side and we are talking about the stuff that deeply moved us, it is because we are passionate Members in the congregation of comic books. That's why I'm here each and every week talking to you about this. And today, I just wanted to talk about the passion, about this shared church and and how we each proselytize and share each of of what we love. You know, my favorites were Daredevil and the X-Men. Some of my other friends, their favorites was the Justice League or the Omega Men. Hank Canals loved the Omega Men. I remember it specifically as the fall of 1985. He just would passionately, in 86, 85 to 86, he would turn me on. I had abandoned the Omega Man. I, I wasn't picking up anymore. But his passion for the new direction and the artist who had taken over, Sean McManus, was enough that I started buying the Omega Man again. I've done it for others. People have done it for me. If Robert Kirkman doesn't shove The Walking Dead in front of me, I don't encounter encounter zombies at all. I had avoided zombies my entire life. I had never seen any of the George Romero stuff. I saw all my first Romero movies. I knew they existed. I just didn't partake with them, in them, of them, until Robert told me, what, you haven't seen a zombie? And boom, then I became a new convert. And that's what it's about. Get out there, make converts. Comics is our passion. Let's continue to grow the audience, give our trade paperbacks, loan our comics out, make sure kids are reading comics as much as we possibly can, share that passion and do the service of the church of comic books. Let me tell you, this this church of comic books vibe, this is this is what this season is really going to be about. Are you sharing it? Are you are, are are you are you uh are you turning other people on to your passion? You know, I I don't participate in Sandman but I know it's out there. I know it's doing very well on Netflix, and I know it's exciting the base. And I know that the base is out there; they're sharing it. They're 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 telling other people about it. They're grabbing the collections. My my friends who who do the shows and are on the convention circuit that's what's moving. That's what's selling, along with the boys and everything else. People are sharing. But but again, I can tell you, I had to keep looking up to not stumble when I walked out with this copy of X Men One Forty One the day I bought it, and it was late in the afternoon. It wasn't. You know, midday, it was during the school year. It was after school. I had walked down to U-Totem. I would found this. It just completely, you know, took all of my attention. And I walked home just staring at the pages. Couldn't believe what I was participating in. And couldn't couldn't wait to share it. I drew it. I wrote stories about it. I played it out in the backyard. Yep. I was 12. I was still having what I call adventures. Reenacting. Kind of bringing to life what I dug. That's being... that that, that's the church of comic books and again this vibe get used to it you're going to hear more about it this is what we're going to be swimming in at the end of every episode i share with you the reviews that you guys leave for me you're so generous you you've you've participated in growing this show getting a bigger audience um more than i ever possibly imagined uh shout out to my my technician my producer tim fulton who puts who puts this show together he he tells me rob you know you you you're, you're doing so well. This is, this is, especially in the first year, this is so much more than, than, than most podcasters are are able to, 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 you know, attract. And so, especially we're very genre, you know, based and, and your guys support is, is fantastic. And I I just appreciate it so much when you leave reviews for me, uh, whether it's on Apple or other platforms, I, I share them here at the end of every show. I read them to you as I'm going to read today, from my good friend Wayne B. Medina. I don't know Wayne, but this is so kind. I'm going to call my friend. He says, Rob'servations is like comfort food. Rob'servations is comfort food. You feed your mind and soul with awesome stories, and towards the end, you are full of happiness. And he gives me a smiley emoji. You are the one who was my favorite comic book artist when I was young, and the reason that I am an artist today. I thank you for the visual awesomeness over the years and wish you many more awesome years in the future. I am glad I stumbled upon your podcast. It makes for some good entertainment when I go out on my long walks. Take care, Wayne B. Medina. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. That is why I'm here sharing each and every uh, week, twice a week on this podcast, uh, because this is my passion, and I'm so glad that you are able to return that passion. Thank you for writing that very generous comment thanks for posting it you guys when you do that i share that it's important it helps position our show so well you guys have really been so generous and left all sort of so many great many um terrific reviews and comments and i am so deeply appreciative of them them. again when you read them i will i will read them at the end of each and every one of my shows time permitting and most of the time i have time uh today i didn't go crazy long I'm all over social media, you guys. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I'm at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. I love reading your comments, your DMs, your messages. I, I try and participate with all of you as much as much as I possibly can. Sometimes it'll be a like. Sometimes it'll be a reply. Um, just I, I I thank you so much for following me um, on Instagram, at Rob Liefeld. On Twitter, I had to do the full... Robert Liefeld, R O B E R T L I E F E L D. Both have a blue check. It tells you that's really me, not some scam artist who is trying to ask you to send funds to some email um, and play on my name. The blue check is what you're after. That's me. That's the legit. This podcast has a Facebook page, Rob's Observations with Rob Liefeld on Facebook. Um, hit the like button. Uh, leave a comment. I'll find the like. I'll find you. Uh, I have a group called Rob Leifeld and Extreme Group. That specific title, Rob Leifeld and Extreme Group. I am the moderator along with a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. One of us will approve you into the group if you submit for um, membership. We are the two administrators. That's how you know by Terry or myself that you're at the right place. Rob Leifeld and Extreme Group, we're growing leaps and bounds. Um, everything that I've ever worked on is kind of fair game. Obviously, if I've worked on Fantastic Four and Avengers, which I have, we discuss Fantastic Four and Avengers. It's, it's great. It's um it's a great group, great fans, great art, great memories. I appreciate if you jump over there with me and hang out. That'd be great. Uh, I think that's about it, right? Oh, on Whatnot. There's an app called Whatnot that you can find me on at least once a week, sharing co- collectibles, toys, pops, comic books. It's growing. It's uh, the people who put, the, put it together. Whatnot is an incredibly well-run app. I am so happy to be on it. I've, I've only been on it a few weeks. But if you guys want to jump over on Whatnot, you got you to get the app. You got to be part of the app. It's only app-based, but I have a live show. I stream sometimes four hours a night. People have said it's like an extension of this podcast, so jump on it if, you're, if you care to. It, it gives you an opportunity. There's a Buy It Now store. We do auctions. It's kind of why Whatnot exists. It's like the QVC of comic books and collectibles. So check me out on Whatnot. At the end of every episode, I make it a point, and I always will, to encourage you to feed yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Those are the four quadrants of where you're going to find your max happiness, and sometimes that's reading a good comic book, or having a good cupcake, or a good cookie, or a bag of Doritos, or a Slurpee, or watching a great streaming show, binging an entire you know season of The Boys, or Invincible, or watching Obi-Wan, or Mandalorian, or going to the movies with your friends, seeing Maverick for the 10th time. Is that me? Uh, you know, Just feeding yourself creatively will that there's a component in your mental your spiritual your physical and your emotional being that will that will completely respond to that and your your brain will will relax and be excited and inspired and I wish that for you guys I wish that you can get on your recliner read a good book a good comic and again participate in some great stories some great storytelling and eat fun food. Come on, cheat night. Maybe every night's a cheat night. You never know. Maybe, maybe that maybe that piece of pizza needs to be chased the next night by a taco, a burrito, a hamburger, some Kentucky fried chicken, some fried chicken, Clyde's fried chicken, Jaybird. Uh, there's so much. Uh, what they've done with the fried chicken space is just crazy. That's for another show. I guarantee you. <laughs> we did the fast food. There's a, one of my most absolute popular episodes I've ever done is the Fast Food Comics podcast. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. It, 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 relates my experience with comics and with all the different fast food and all the events that happen along the way. You guys, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for sharing the love. Please swing back by, see me again. I'll be here waiting for you. And we will most certainly talk again real soon.